0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and information affecting the ASC industry, discuss recent experiences with our centers, review updates on the PPP program, get an update on the 2021 CMS payment rule, and in our focus segment, discuss cybersecurity and cyber threats with our friends at Surgical Information Systems.
1: This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com.
0: Welcome to episode 116 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for November 21st, 2020, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And now, Recognized as a new grandpa. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> yes, it happened on Monday. Very at, important uh, role. Nine twenty, <laughs> I believe. Uh, beautiful baby girl. Her name is Josie, uh, and uh, my daughter is doing very well. She works for Amateur Healthcare Strategies. She's a regular here on our podcast. So uh, she's uh, she's going to be a mom for uh, quite a while here, <laughs> for the rest well, of her she'll life. Be, yes. <laughs> but uh, but
0: at she'll least. Be a, a exclusively a mom that's for right a while. she's she's taking some time off
1: and you and i just came We're back just from uh, seeing the baby mm-hmm. who is so tiny oh my tiny. gosh oh my goodness. so
0: tiny and so beautiful she but doing so so, so well
1: and and dad is really stepping up actually yeah. he spent the entire time holding the baby we didn't mm-hmm. even see mom taking care of the baby yep. but it was beautiful it's great to be a grandfather i do feel a little bit older um, you know, but, and of course the gray hair came well before these grandchildren yes. did. I
0: don't know. I think grandkids keep you young, actually. Yeah, I
1: think I'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but it is great. And, uh, thank you for all the well wishes from all of my friends and, uh, who, uh, I had, uh, I was texting pictures of, uh, Josie all over the place on, mm-hmm. on Monday. I don't think I got any work done, real work done anyway. Yeah,
0: And I had a new granddaughter just, That's right. uh, about two months ago now. So it's funny cause they're, they're both tiny Tiny little things, healthy, but yeah. you know, just just very petite, and you know, I think they're going to be fast friends when they get older, I, I, I being think so, so too. close in age. That's cute.
1: Well, and then I I got some interesting news last week. I had uh, actually a second
0: sort um... of a second degree exposure. You were yeah. you were with someone at a center. For a couple of days, who found out then that her husband was positive for COVID. So,
1: but it it brings up some interesting issues because uh, I had been tested about ten days ago, just about a week before Mm -hmm. that exposure. Uh, Had no problems getting tested. I had uh, I had some uh, symptoms. I actually had to go to urgent care because I was having um, pretty bad cough. That problem went away very quickly with wonderful drugs. And then, um, but I was tested at that time and it was negative. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, well, I won't have any problem just calling up the local center and uh, getting tested. I have not been able to do that yet. Yeah, it's Uh,
0: gotten much harder because I had just been tested a a few days before and my daughter as well, and it was just sort of a a matter of making an appointment at one of the local either— Urgent Cares or um, Drugstore. Right. And now I, I think because the surge again, it's just, it's it's very hard. You know, you, yeah. you might be able to make an appointment a week from then. Right. And at that point, it's... it's
1: I'm still know. waiting for the call back because I followed the rules. And yeah. if you follow the rules, apparently that's not the way to get tested.
0: Calling because so. you had called the state. I did, and yeah. And it's their... Not very a, responsive right now. I know. Be, I, I think overwhelmed, you know. But. Yeah.
1: Well, which also brings uh, – so anyway, uh, you know, I, I'll probably end up having to visit one of my centers who is doing testing in order to get tested here. But uh, actually, I'm, I'm heading up tomorrow um, to a certain state. I better not say where it is because I'm doing a Medicare – uh, deemed status survey. But I'm going to one of those states that has some pretty significant restrictions. Uh, luckily, you know, because of the accreditation organization, I'm able to travel across borders without having to do the uh, the quarantining. Uh-huh. But it is getting very complicated. I got to tell you, you know, Sue, you and I have been talking about it. I, You know, I don't I'm getting nervous, you know, about traveling again. Yeah. Um, you know, especially since we've seen in rest stops, we've seen in hotels uh, a certain amount of fatigue. I think when it comes to uh, masking, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you and I talked in one of the podcasts uh, about you know seeing people with uh, wearing the mask below their nose, which you might as well not even bother to wear the the mask yeah. at that point. Or, um,
0: and I think you're right; it is such fatigue. People have yeah. been dealing with it for so long, um, or they. Uh, and and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But also, I think some people just don't quite believe it's as serious yeah. as as it is if they don't if they haven't experienced it as much and in Western New York. Here, we we yeah. hadn't really seen a lot of it as as much as people in New York City. And and we're getting that now, though. So I think right. people, you know, when you start hearing about people you know,
1: and one of my dear yeah. friends and a big uh, friend of the industry, I won't mention her <laughs> name, obviously, but uh, but uh, she tested positive. She had a hundred and three. Degree um, temperature, temperature. temperature. Yeah. So uh, you know who you are. I know that you're a regular listener here, but uh, our hearts go out to you. I, I know that she's doing better now, but uh, but it's scary, you know, when it uh-huh. comes that close and when she's uh, so sick. So yeah, I yeah. think when people. Actually, know someone that is uh, very sick with mm-hmm. it. It becomes real. Yeah. But uh, please, but, everybody, watch out for this fatigue. You know, we can't mm-hmm. let our guard down, and uh, we don't want to end up with another, you know, big surge in, uh, mm-hmm. well, in this. Unfortunately, kind of the, ending the up the with rate, that. But I think then, if yeah. they
0: get that fatigue that you're talking about, they maybe people stop wearing the mask. Right. They just think, "I am so tired of dealing with it," or they just get used to it. Maybe nobody. Maybe you've been so careful that nobody's gotten sick in, in your yeah. workplace and you get a little bit lax, like I know everybody, I have lunch with them every day in, in the yeah. break room, and you you begin to not be as careful, and right. then that's just asking for trouble.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and then again, a lot of what we are dealing with, uh, uh, we're recording on a Saturday. I think uh, yesterday, Friday was a bad day in terms of the number of phone calls that both you and I were fielding throughout the day with... Uh, uh, talking to our clients about exposures, mm-hmm. you know either patients or employees or family members of employees or um, other types of exposures, and we because in many areas the Department of Health is not able to either answer their phone calls yeah. uh, doesn 't return phone calls um, or just doesn 't even really say anything that we're we 're walking everyone through mm-hmm. and and you can 't give global answers to these questions. Yeah. You really have to ask a lot of questions. So every time I, I get a phone call from a client, I, I spend probably 20 minutes to 30 minutes on the phone walking through mm-hmm. what's the right thing to do, trying yeah. to make sure that we're but, doing the right thing um, by talking through it yeah. in the absence of very...
0: Any uh, real guidance. And gui- I think that's, yeah. like you said, we're, we're just trying to use our best judgment, but the best thing to do is to call the, the Department of Health, but we just, we're not getting not responses answering. at this point. So yeah. it's a... It's kind of a difficult thing and with the rules of it, that you have to test when you get back to new york if if you left for any reason or whatever, but then if you can't get tested, how yeah. it's just very. Very well, the situation typical. I'm going
1: to run into is that my exposure by the time I can get in to be tested, the 14-day quarantine period would have been over anyway, mm-hmm. um, or you know the period that They're they close, request yeah, that the you, 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 you quarantine. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but it it seems unlikely. Uh, uh, the people that were around me on that have all, that have been able to be tested mm-hmm. uh, were negative, so I, I think I'm all right. But yeah. but anyway, uh, God bless all of you out there who are uh, in the in the front lines with us and having to deal with trying to make some very tough decisions and in the face of, uh, yeah. of, of an increasing number of, of diagnoses. I mean, one thing, I, I've been following the statistics very closely. Thank goodness. I mean, a little a consolation for the people that are getting sick, um, but the uh, the mortality rate is dropping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, fatality rate, I should say, is dropping. Uh, yeah. But but the hospitalization rate is increasing yeah. uh, in many areas.
0: Well, they're keeping the, they're not so overcrowded, and then they've learned a lot. I listened to that um Z dog m d love him yeah. YouTube <laughs> things, but you know, and he's explained how much we've learned about treating it, and it you know it, it seems a little hopeful at least that you know that that not as many people are dying from it. There's still plenty of reason to be careful but and I know a lot of the fear that people have too right now is the fear that they're going to be shut down again and yeah. can they survive that.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think my feeling right now is that uh, we're – I don't think it's likely that in most parts of the country – it's mm-hmm. hard to tell to, to make this universal. But uh, but I think it's unlikely that they're going to stop surgery centers from doing electives because we we're seeing mm-hmm. um, the negative consequences of that. Yeah. Uh, certainly among our clients, we're seeing a higher – um, diagnosis of a cancer rate because of yeah. the delay in treatment. We know that there's still a lot of people out there that are not getting care. Uh, we're seeing uh, much more complex surgeries having to be done because of the delay in the uh-huh. surgery. And that will continue because we still are not back to the level that we were before.
0: Yeah, and it makes so much more sense <laughs> for the hospitals to cut it out right? because they, they really need to focus on, oh, on the COVID patients. And, and when they're getting overcrowded, and send, you know, some of that elective stuff or, or the less urgent things that they want to stop. And I think some hospitals are doing that. They're closing down their outpatient surgery right. departments. and
1: To be able to focus on that. Uh-huh. Now, another interesting statistic that I was uh, watching, at least locally, I don't know how broad this is, but our hospitals in, in Rochester, which before the pandemic uh-huh. were running at near capacity, are back to running at capacity. But I believe the number was only 5% of the patients uh-huh. in the, the hospital are uh have COVID. Now that's really scary though because mm-hmm. first of all it tells us that indeed things are catching up. In other words all of those people that are sick or, or have been delaying care are coming back to the hospitals uh and that there is no leeway right now for mm-hmm. another surge.
0: And I wouldn't um, be surprised if that because even that was probably a week or two ago and that's true. Yeah. And so much has changed just as we were talking about the testing changed so much in just a week. In a
1: week, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I really want to look up those statistics. I but know. but I think uh as I said, I'm hoping that, uh, that we've gotten the message across that uh, stopping elective procedures is really not, not a good thing right now. So, and of course, you know, during this whole thing, uh, people are out there taking advantage of the situation. And mm-hmm. actually, the topic of today's uh, podcast, the, the focus segment, is mm-hmm. uh, talking about cyber attacks. And uh, uh, there's been a dramatic increase I'm even seeing not uh, I'm seeing um text messages coming to me mm-hmm. you know from people trying to uh, uh get me to go to a website um i, I mean I, I it's very clear that you know it's not something I want to do so yeah. I don't know what would happen if I did go to that website uh we're getting you know increasing number of emails uh phone calls um yeah. I think my uh social security number has been what's the term' <laughs> <I don't...
0: laughs> Yeah, not withdrawn, but uh, right. it's as <laughs> if they, you know, canceled your yeah, security canceled my social security number if you don't respond immediately.
1: <laughs> and then the the police are on their way to to arrest me uh, yes. because the IRS is is yes. after me. So
0: and of course my car warranty, I've got to get know. on that. I know.
1: <laughs> it seems to uh, be canceled, like or uh, to expire every day. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but of course, there's always people out there that are going to take advantage yeah, of it, so. and uh, you know, it's affecting governmental agencies. Other more uh, major organizations, and of course healthcare, and it does appear that uh, I think in in the focus segment, mm-hmm. the SIS is talking about how healthcare in particular is one yeah. of those areas that they feel that they uh, they can make a lot of money doing it. So, uh, yeah. Sue, there was an article in AP too about this, wasn't mm-hmm. there?
0: Yeah, when I started looking into it, I, I realized I I must have missed, but it was it was big news on October twenty eighth in the Associated Press, they had said that the FBI and other federal agencies issued a warning on that same day, on October 28th, that ransomware attacks are targeting our healthcare systems. And they gave some examples of recent incidents, which were kind of scary. A ransom attack affected 250 U.S. facilities that were affiliated with universal health services, which resulted in um, the doctors and nurses nurses having to do their charting with paper and pen, which doesn't seem like that much, but anybody that's done that, it really does slow you down, and and we can't afford to be in this epidemic slowed down. Um, it slowed down lab work and caused the failure of some wireless vital sign monitoring equipment. And when you think of how much that can burden an already overloaded hospital, yeah. Um, a total of fifty nine U.S. healthcare systems, which involved up to an, up to five hundred and ten individual facilities, have been affected this year. That is so scary, that's,
1: unbelievable.
0: Yep. Yeah. And the first known fatality happened in Germany in September where um, they were taking a critically ill patient into the hospital and they had to be rerouted due to um, some cyber attack activity and the patient didn't make it to the farther hospital. And this particular group that they talked about, they're using a type of ransomware called, I don't know, it's RYUK, it's R-Y-U-K, which is seeded through a network of zombie computers called TrickBot, um, Microsoft and and U.S. Cyber Command, are working to counteract these attacks. This group demands ransoms of over $10 million per target. And they did say they listen in on, I don't know, it sounds so scary and fake, but listening in on the dark web, that yeah. they are really planning more attacks and hoping to cause panic, especially during the pandemic. Um, and they're not just targeting health care, but they're, they said subgroups are targeting... Um, major city governments, local governments and school systems. So I don't know, reading over that, it really, yeah, it was a little anxiety producing because, you know, you think of people that are just out there just doing this and planning this just, you know, obviously for the money, they're asking for a lot of money, but right. also just kind of realizing how much that can really panic people.
1: Well, on to other issues. (laughs) The IRS has clarified uh, the deductibility of the uh, PPP loan expenses. So the uh, Treasury Department and the IRS released guidance uh, this last week. I can't – actually, I don't have the date here. Sorry, I don't know exactly when it came out. Um, Clarifying that the tax treatment of expenses were a paycheck protection program, the PPP loan – uh, has not been forgiven by the end of the year uh, that the loan was received. So you might know that up until now we've been kind. Of, people have been uh, encouraged not to immediately rush out and uh, do the application for the PPP uh, pending finalization of that information. Uh, however, since businesses are not taxed on the proceeds of a forgiven PPP loan, the expenses also are not deductible. This results in neither a tax benefit nor tax harm, since the p- taxpayer has not paid anything out of pocket. So, if a, so the under the clarification, if a business reasonably believes that a PPP loan will be forgiven in the future, expenses related to the loan are not deductible, whether the business actually filed for forgiveness or not. therefore, uh, they're we're really trying to encourage uh, businesses, accountants are really trying to encourage businesses to file for the forgiveness now as soon as possible. In other words, uh, forget our earlier advice, accountants earlier advice about uh, holding off on it because you might be in a situation where, your forgiveness doesn't happen until 2021, but if you reasonably assume that you're going to uh, have that loan written off, the expenses also are not going to be forgiven in 2020, uh, which means you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have excess uh, tax um, uh, an excess tax burden for 2020. Uh, so the, in, in the case where a PPP loan was effected, uh, was expected to be forgiven and it is not, businesses will be able to deduct those expenses, I presume, in the year uh, that that's determined. So I think what uh, the accountants are trying to say is it's time to go out and, and, uh, and file for your PPP uh, forgiveness. As a matter of fact, our company uh, just did that about two weeks ago. So mm-hmm. um, And this is sad. During uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, Twelve hospitals have closed,
0: right, Sue? So- we saw this in Becker's Hospital Review um, that hospitals across the nation have experienced financial strain tied to the COVID nineteen pandemic, and you know because of obviously lower patient volumes. Because when they when they weren't either overloaded yeah. um, and struggling, then people just weren't showing up. It's been such a dramatic shift up or down. Um, you know, with elective procedures being canceled. They said U.S. hospitals are estimated to lose more than $323 billion this year.
1: Uh, and that's according to a report from the American Hospital Association. And by the way, this mm-hmm. uh, this was in uh, Becker's Hospital Review, which is beckershospitalreview.com. Our good friends over there, thank you uh, for all the wonderful work, by the way, yeah. that Becker's has been doing uh, throughout this. Uh, those of you who do not know about Becker's, they have uh-huh. both the Becker's uh, Hospital Review and Becker's ASC. Um, Back,
0: um, Becker's spine, they've got, right, I, they've I got quite a few different, a lot do. of... Yeah. Lot of good information they put out there.
1: So uh, please uh, definitely visit their website for up-to-date information. And I know all of our uh, uh, audience members have been anxiously waiting for us to talk about the Medicare ASC payment rule, but it has been delayed. Usually we get it uh, within the first week in November. Um, so while the well, CMS typically releases that uh, payment rule by a uh, By by where we are right now, I think Uh we're at November 21st, Um, it has been delayed due to the COVID-19 public health emergency. CMS has acknowledged that while it usually provides a 30-day delay in the effective date of of the final rules that they are issued in accordance with the uh, Congressional, Congressional Review Act, uh, if the agency finds good cause that notice and public procedure are not are impractical, impracticable, impracticable uh, unnecessary, contrary to the public interest, the rule shall take effect at such time as the agency determines. So, what they're basically saying is that uh, if um, if they find that they're going to have to delay the implementation of it, they will will do that. I I, th- I would say that's probably unlikely though, because it's really more to our benefit to have that rule mm-hmm. uh, implemented on on. January first. So, so what they did say, uh, or ASCA has indicated they anticipate the rule will be released sometime around Thanksgiving or shortly thereafter. So, hopefully, shortly after this uh, episode is released, we might mm-hmm. have some more information, and we will try to get it yep. to you as quickly and as possible. Next episode. And as uh, along those lines, don't forget to sign up for the finance, accounting, and reimbursement seminar uh, for uh, ASCs, which is coming up on. December 3rd and 4th, and for more information about that, go to ASCPodcast.com. It's a joint venture of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and uh, Coding Compliance Management uh, Services with our friend uh, Christina Benton.
0: And as we always talk about some of our recent experiences, so we wanted to talk a little bit about consents. This was kind of
1: interesting. We were doing mm-hmm. uh, because of my exposure. We decided not to go, do an actual in-person. Uh, you and I were going to go out to one of our clients and do a uh, in-person uh, mock mm-hmm. survey. Yep. Um, and after talking to the client, we both agreed that let's let's uh, let's not do that in person. Uh, and and they were having a lot of issues going on also, so they really couldn't dedicate. It. And by the way, that was kind of interesting. So we've created this new product. Uh, talk about ad- adapting to the industry. Uh-huh. We've created this new product, shall we say, where we're doing mock surveys by Personally. Zoom. Yep. And it was absolutely incredible because we had 10 people on the Zoom session uh-huh. when we were doing this whole thing. We we're on for about four hours. We also did another session a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but the medical director was on for the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that, I, I've never been to a mock survey where the medical director yeah. <laughs> has been with me that entire time. Yeah, And uh, they really, uh, they kind of praised the whole process. It was it was very good. So uh, mm-hmm. anybody that's mm-hmm. interested, uh, we are doing mock surveys by uh, Zoom right now, and uh, people have been very pleased mm-hmm. with it. Of course, well, because it,
0: they had not, not just the medical director, they had quite a lot of their staff that you would never be able to have this whole right. cluster of people walking through the center. But they, yeah. you know, they're, I don't know, 10- I think they it was 1.11 people.
1: people, and, and yeah. people were popping in and out you know, mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing. Yes, yeah, so they had to work One for of the persons whatever. was carrying a cell phone so that we could yeah. actually see different areas. That was a little, I got a little dizzy a after l- a no. while because of the uh, the way the camera was yeah. going. But and when it they couldn't hear
0: well. us. We got to look at their ear yeah, right? a lot when they <laughs> hold the phone up to their ear. But yeah, it was so we got really some technological good. problems yeah. we still have to
1: work on, but, uh, but it worked very well. It did. But in this particular case, during that mock survey, and again, I'm not even sure I would have caught this if I were there on site. But uh, during the conversation, we find out that uh, we talked about the informed consent for anesthesia services. And it turned out that the patient is is asked to sign the informed consent for anesthesia mm-hmm. before the anesthesiologist even sees the patient. Yeah. And uh, I made that very clear that that is not an appropriate way to do that. How can a, how can a patient mm-hmm. sign off on an informed consent for anesthesia when that informed consent, that verbal uh, discussion, did not occur? And let me make something clear, too. Informed consent is not the document. Informed consent is the discussion that you have with the patient um, the the document the consent form documents the fact that that informed uh-huh. consent occurred so so if um, you
0: really want if, if some people feel like the doctor or the anesthesiologist doesn't have time to get that consent can they do it can the nurse get that after the conversation? The yeah. doctor or the anesthesiologist comes in and talks to the patient. The nurse comes and, and says, Now, did you have a chance to ask right. questions? Did you understand what he said? And then they can get that signature. Right? Absolutely.
1: I. Yeah, but that does bring up an important point, Sue, too. And you, as a nurse, know that I spent half my life trying to protect you guys uh, because I don't, it, it's got to be clear that the nurse is not the person who's giving mm-hmm. the informed consent. Yes. And the way you, That you discuss that with the patient. You, as a nurse, you should never be going through the uh, the risks and Uh benefits. Uh Uh, Never even really mentioning them, other than to say, you know, did you have the conversation with the doctor? Are you aware of these things? Do you have any questions about it? And in the minute the patient starts asking questions, you say, get wait a minute, let me get again. the doctor. Yeah. Um,
0: and yeah. I don't think that's that unusual. I've heard of this plenty of times. They say, well,
1: yeah.
0: the, the patient will be able to talk to the doctor. I, I know they will, so I'll just get the consent now. And that's just that's absolutely yeah. uh, not legally and, not okay. And and
1: Right. And, and of course, once we discuss this with this particular client, they, they were all right with it. Mm-hmm. They understood it. But, yeah, they're but it good. really is a legal issue, even more so than from a regulatory uh-huh. standpoint. So... And then uh, we've been talking about credentialing issues for the the last uh, two or three episodes. Uh, We do have this credentialing conference coming up on December 8th. Please sign up for it. It's, uh, again, more information at ASCPodcast.com. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things. But uh, another issue came up this week. Uh, Sue, you were actually fielding this one. We were talking about malpractice issues and how to document them into the credential chart. So one thing that... uh, we need to make clear is the National Practitioner Data Bank only shows closed cases. So when you uh, get a a physician who is applying for privileges or doing a reapplication, when they are listing all their malpractice cases, we are going to have to get some details about those cases uh, that haven't been um, reported to National Mm -hmm. Practitioner Data Bank yet that are still open.
0: So you can get that report off the MPDB. Website, but then anything that's either more recently, so it hasn't been reported, or as you said, if it's open, even if it's many years, old, right. you have to get the get that information straight from the physician.
1: So often these physicians, as part of because the application should say, please provide details of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't, uh, you know, you might want to have a, a form available where they can fill it out to provide those details.
0: So you get the information off the NPD B site, and then how do you do? You Just make a practice of always asking your physicians, is there anything that you haven't reported to MPDB? As
1: part of the application or the Mm reapplication, it should be in there, yes. But that brings up an interesting point is that sometimes we just ignore this, Uh, not we, but sometimes our Mm -hmm. clients ignore it when they're going through the credentialing or recredentialing process. Uh, And it is important that we look at those documents, uh, that we review those cases, that the medical director and the administrator uh, review the cases for the relevance in the privileging decision, and then document the decision in the credential chart. And if it's serious enough, the board uh, should reference that decision in the board minutes without providing any details, obviously, Mm -hmm. or any specifics about it. But there needs to be some specific reference to the fact that the board reviewed that information uh, in making the decision. And, again, you don't even need to be specific. uh, For example, in your your minutes, you might say uh, the board reviewed the applications for the following providers, um, and then list the providers and also remember to list the, the, uh, the time frame for the privileges that you're granting. At the end, uh, you can say or at, after that, you can say the, the board reviewed all the credential information including malpractice cases that uh, uh, have been attributed to these uh, physicians and determined that there was no issue with regard to the, the particular malpractice cases that are relevant to the, the determination to provide the privileges to those doctors. So as I said, uh, join us for the industry's first comprehensive training program for staff and managers responsible for credentialing providers in the ambulatory surgery setting. The conference will be presented virtually on December 8th, 2020 at 9 o'clock a.m. Attendees are all going to receive very valuable resources, including example forms to use in credentialing, copies of the slides from the presentations, and access to the recording uh, of the program for three months after the conference. More information, go to ASCPodcast.com. Wow, we are running over already. uh, 30 minutes here, I think, for this segment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll uh, talk about cybersecurity with our friends at SIS.
2: When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With Revenue Cycle Services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. CIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoyed these results from SIS revenue cycle services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit SysFirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at Sys can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's SysFirst.com to learn more about Sys Revenue Cycle Services.
0: John and I are here talking about cybersecurity with Bobby Roberts, Senior Vice President of Development for Surgical Information Systems, and Paul Alcock, Director of Information Security with Surgical Information Systems.
1: So thank you, Bobby and Paul. Um, It's great to have you on our uh, podcast here. We missed Cybersecurity Month last month, unfortunately, in uh, October, Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. There's been a lot uh, in the press recently about cybersecurity threats, uh, particularly in hospitals and hospital systems. Well, I'm not aware of uh, any major, or certainly there hasn't been a lot of publicity uh, surrounding them in surgery centers. We know that healthcare in general has been uh, heavily targeted through cybersecurity um, uh, threats and I uh, thought that this would be a good topic to discuss. So I'm, I have two experts on it with me and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how we can protect our surgery centers and and uh, the different types of threats that uh, surgeries have, have depending upon the type of system that they have. So. Uh, let's get into it.
3: Thanks, John and Sue for, for having us uh, today. And this is a um, really timely subject based on the, the emerging threats and the escalations that we're seeing from bad actors over the recent months, particularly throughout the pandemic. Um, the cyber intelligence sources of, uh, including our own security team have reported a significant increase in, uh, in threat activity looking to exploit the pandemic. And then even just last week, um, the DHS CISA issued an alert. Uh, of an imminent threat to the healthcare industry, uh, with a notable escalation in uh, in Ransomware operators uh, specifically targeting hospitals and healthcare. Um, so yeah, this is definitely a timely conversation, and happy to share our experiences and, and views
1: with uh, with your views. Well, and, and Paul, interestingly, just a couple of days ago, we uh, we live in New York and a number of our clients are from New York and a lot of our listeners are from New York. The New York State Department of Health issued a, uh, a warning uh, similar to what you just talked about, about the high threat level that we have right now. And actually, they're doing some webinars and trying to prepare health systems for it. So definitely a big inquiry. Actually, Why? Uh, I mean, do you have any concept of why this is happening right now at the, at, you know, during the pandemic?
3: So I, I think there's there's two reasons. Ransomware operators tip, they're doing it for a financial gain. They're looking to make money uh, mm. from these attacks. When you do it in a in a high stress situation such as the pandemic, uh, and you lock down uh, the ability for a healthcare provider to provide services to um, to its patients then that, that sense of urgency typically results in a payout for the ransomware actors. And I think that's why you're seeing this escalated focus on healthcare. Right, uh, It's just because these, these bad actors know that the chances are uh, they need their data, they need it quick, and they're likely to pay to get it back.
1: And, and we're all moving in the direction of a, a, a lot more reliance on technology uh, and working for different locations now, which makes that uh, security uh, much more difficult to control. Very good point. It does.
3: I mean, the fact that uh, a good portion of the population are now working remotely from home in essentially unsecured networks, uh, it just increases the the likelihood that um, the the operators or any uh, bad actor is going to be successful in their attempts to to gain access to your internal environments.
1: So what can we do? First of all, are you aware? I'm. I'm actually curious. Are you aware of any cybersecurity? You know, without obviously not being specific, but any any attacks that have uh, attacked the ASC industry at this point? Uh,
3: not not relative to the most recent announcement from uh, the DHS CISO or the FBI relative to, to RIAK ransomware. Um, I am aware of a number of ransomware attacks on ASCs uh, and smaller <laughs> healthcare providers that have been carried out this year successfully. I know some instances where they've actually been hit twice by a ransomware attacks. So uh, it's def- it's not something, one of these things where you you tend to hear about it and it's on the news, but it, you never you never really know anybody. You hear it kind of through the grapevine, but we've had knowledge of ASCs and uh, small healthcare providers that have been impacted by ransomware this year.
1: And I guess another uh, note to be made is that it doesn't necessarily need to be you before it would impact you. We, ha- you know, like if a hospital system is impacted and they might be providing uh, pre-operative services, HMPs, things like that, you could be uh, in trouble also simply because you're relying
3: on their systems to get you information. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's. I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, building a cybersecurity program later on, but um, vendor management and relationships with third parties is is critical to the success of your own. Information security program uh, because we've seen all too often in the past where bad actors are able to gain access to to the prize um, through a third party vendor or an unsecured integration.
1: So let's make sure we help our listeners understand the magnitude of this problem. I mean, this isn't just affecting the large ASCs, uh, large health systems, correct? I mean, this this I mean, you could be a one room operating room. As a matter of fact, you're probably even more sensitive to it Mm -hmm. if you're very small because you don't have the resources. So. Uh, And and a a ransomware situation, Uh, we're not talking $1.95 to uh, to get out of it, correct?
3: No, no, not at all. I I think you, depending on your size and the amount of data, uh, these operators will be familiar with your organization. I'm not saying that you would be specifically targeted, but obviously once you've been infected, uh, they are aware of that and they are aware of your organization and how much and how valuable getting your data back is to you. But yeah, you, you can be talking upwards of a million to get your information back if you choose to pay the ransom, and that's the route we decide to go.
1: So what should we do? And let's just start, I mean, any organization, no matter of size, what should they do first? Or what should be, uh, we like to say, what are you going to do tomorrow morning after you listen mm-hmm. to this podcast?
3: Uh, I think the, the first thing you need to do um, and, and going right back to basics is if you don't have any form of security function within your ASV or your business, uh, you need to really assign responsibility of security to, to somebody within your environment. Um, I think one of the misconceptions around uh, cybersecurity and building it out is, is that it's extremely complicated and, and it's expensive and it, it takes a large number of resources and while it can, I mean, obviously, the, the bigger your your um, ASC or your business, um, the more resource it's going to take to secure that. But for the for the regular ASC, I would I would recommend starting by assigning an individual within the ASC responsibility for security. Um, you need to understand your environment. You need to identify off the bat where your crown jewels lie. Uh, understand and how to protect those crown jewels and implement a lot of your controls around those. And when I say crown jewels, I'm talking PHI, client data, um, the information that you need to protect at all costs and the information that is specifically being targeted by bad actors. Uh, and then get, get, a, get somebody in to do a risk assessment. Have somebody come in, take a look at your environment, give you a third hand, second set of eyes to identify uh, potential risks, not only from a uh, compliance standard, obviously we have to, we have to maintain HIPAA compliance, but also just security risks across your organization. Have somebody take a look, identify those risks, uh, and then you can start building out your program based on, uh, it, and you can set a roadmap over three years, looking at, uh, how you remediate and prioritize those identified risks, um, and, and then build out your plan from there.
4: One of the things I was going to add to that is um, most of your ambulatory surgery centers are using some sort of software, and I would say do not be afraid to reach out to your vendors for help. You know, find out what, what are their processes for backing up the data or helping you to back up the data, um, because as as Paul says, keeping them, keeping your crown jewels secure is ideal. But it's just like anywhere else. If somebody really wants to break in, they're going to break in. You need to have a way to back it up, restore it and and keep that going. So reach out to your vendors and and get them to leverage them to also help you with the backups, the restores and and understanding what's the key pieces, how long is it going to take and what type of downtime would you be looking at?
0: As a non-technical person in the room, um, what exactly does a cyber attack look like when you say you, you have to pay to get your information back? Do they just lock down the computer?
3: So, and I know there's been a lot of focus on ransomware uh, of late, and that probably is one of the biggest risks, um, healthcare organization right now. So uh, typically what happens is, and, and looking at RIOC in particular, the number one um attack vector for those those operators and actually i was just going to follow up on bobby's point and there's one other item when you're building out the security program uh you need to train your associates on how to be able to uh, identify a threat and, and then appropriately respond to that and, and what I, the, the reason i focus on associates are really they're on the front line um they aren't security trained uh, and these bad actors know that they they actively target your employees with phishing emails that contain links or attachments um, that would ultimately gain access to your internal systems. Uh, And then from there, uh, the the operators typically like to move laterally throughout your environment, try and, and, and escalate their privileges to gain access to an account that would give them a greater level of access to data within your environment. And they can be in there silently roaming around for weeks, months even, just kind of deploying this ransomware in a kind of benign state throughout your environment. And then once they're ready, once they've got this the entire environment uh, infected, they launch the ransomware and it begins encrypting files on every system that it touches. Um, and you typically get a, uh, a note that will pop up on your system to let you know. Uh, that you're a victim of ransomware and to give you some indication on how you can get your files back. Scary. Yeah, it can be. It's, uh, it's definitely a high-stress situation when you lose uh, when you lose all your data that way. And again, if you haven't got the means to be able to recover that data, as Bobby kind of alluded to earlier on, uh, then, then you're really left with no option but to pay. And again, like I mentioned, that, that can be extremely expensive. And for a small ASC, I mean, that could break you. Many
1: of our organizations are very small and have limited resources. Uh, you talked about uh, hiring an outside company to come in and assist you through this process. Uh, however, not every computer company can do this. Not every uh, you know networking company can do this. What should they be looking for in that outside organization that's going to help you through this?
3: Um, I think – You need to to look at reputation of the company. You really want somebody that specializes, particularly in healthcare, understands the HIPAA regulations and what your requirements are. Um, And you need someone, you need to be able to check references. um, Somebody who's worked with other organizations in in a similar fashion, perform these risk assessments that do it on a regular basis. And they're going to be of value to you. And I I know we talk about resources and cost. Um, I, I think... Having somebody come in and help you with this in in either like a virtual CISO role or as just performing annual risk assessments for you is much less expensive than trying to build out your own information security team.
4: I don't know, Bobby, if you've got any additional insight. Well, and and that's that's what I was going to say that the same thing is, you know, when you take a look at assuming, not um, if you get hacked, but when. If you assume when you get hacked, what is going to be the cost to get back online? Um, and you talk about ransomware, right? So ransomware, they come in, they encrypt your data. But you can't always tell, did they take any data out? Did they look at data? So when you talk about PHI, is it are you going to have to provide credit monitoring? Are you going to have to do any of this other stuff for any of the particular patients, right? So the cost is going to be there, either on the front end or the back end. Um, and the preference would be to spend, spend a little bit on the front end get the right company, get a company that's going to help you build a run book that um, maybe even has some training that they can provide for your associates so that, uh, you know, as they have questions, um, you can run it by there. But to help them walk you through the process, even run what do we call a tabletop exercise. Assume you've been hacked. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Who are you going to engage if it is ransomware and you're going to do the payments? So picking a company that will help you provide all of this because none of us, none of us are experts on paying ransom or even the decryption, you know, so you pay the ransom then what do you do? All right. If the decryption fails, what's your recourse? How do you, you know, how do you do these things? So those are all things that these companies have dealt with day in and day out. So getting a company that can communicate that to you, understanding that you may not be technical, um, but will help you with the right processes and the policies in place, that's really what you want to be looking for.
1: Our listeners are uh, well-versed right now in the uh, in risk assessments and the fact that uh, risk assessments have become a big deal uh, in many areas. We have infection control risk assessments. We have disaster risk assessments. And um, you bring up a very good point is that I would venture to say that not everybody is doing um, what we would call HIPAA high-tech uh, risk assessments, which is pretty much a requirement right now. Maybe you're doing a lower end one uh, without Mm -hmm. a lot of detail, but certainly a high-tech risk assessment uh, should be done by a professional who is well-versed in uh, cybersecurity and all those other uh, aspects. So I'll I'll just tell you from my experience, these, uh, these risk assessments can be quite pricey. Uh, And Mm -hmm. you're not going to want to uh, get the bargain. You're you're not going to want to put this out for bid and take the lowest cost uh, uh, product. Uh, Our experience has been it could be as low as $10,000. And by the way, there is no upper limit. It depends upon the size of your organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as you pointed out, that number is well worth it. And uh, I'll, I'll say uh, my experience actually recently for an average size ASC has been in the $20,000 price range, which I bet I am scaring the heck out of most of our listeners right now. Uh, but you made a very good point that uh, being down even for a couple of days, we all know uh, going through the pandemic how expensive it is to, to not be in business. And that could be your situation uh, if you uh, are not able to function without that.
3: Yeah, great points.
1: I want to uh, go back to uh, something we mentioned earlier uh, or alluded to is backups. Certainly a very good, strong backup that's kept off-site or off the uh, – not available, um, not online so that the, uh, the the hackers can get to it is extremely important. And, and also personally, my experience has been – and this is from about 15 years ago when one of our uh, pieces of hardware failed uh, – making sure that your backup is good. So about 15 years ago, I had a situation where hard, hardware failure and we had to go back up uh, – go back – um, I think it was three days, and we were doing daily backups. We were doing everything right, but the, the two most recent days were bad backups, and it was the third day that we were able to get a, a backup. But it took us a week, week and a half to get everything back online. Needless to say, the cost was quite exorbitant there. So how can backups help us here, and uh, how should we be doing those backups in today's environment?
4: So backups can absolutely help you. Um, and one of the things that you really want to try to do is establish a good backup process and then test it. And uh, and what you need to do is actually have regular testing. I know that can also be a little bit of a challenge, um, but but you have to have the regular testing because it doesn't do you any good to have a backup if you can't get to it or it's no good. Uh, now, as Paul talked about, when hackers get into your system, they like to move laterally. They're going to look for those backups. And depending upon the software, there's a lot of automated software that as soon as it gets in, it starts encrypting, which means your backups will probably be OK. Uh, there are other hackers that will sit in there for a week and guess what they're doing. They're backing. They're, they're actually encrypting your backups. Uh, they're trying to make sure that you don't have a way to restore. So having a mechanism every so often to go in and do that test or even just to validate that the backup occurred. And it looks the way you are expecting it. Um, Those are all things that they're actually not complicated to do. They just take a little bit of time and thought to to put the process in place ahead of time. You can do it with scripts. You can do it visually. You can do it with a report. There's a lot of different ways that you can validate that what you've backed up is what you're expecting. And if you've tested your process, that is going to be available to you. Um, and that's, that's where, you know, when Paul said pick somebody, somebody in the ASC that's responsible, and that should just be one of the things that they check. And it's like, hey, you know, I'm on my checklist. Have we tested our backup in the last two weeks? Let's restore it. Let's validate it. Let's look at the report. Everything's looking good. Um, did all the file names change to something that we weren't expecting? Wait a minute. Something weird's going on. Um, but if you get somebody that's responsible, you don't have to be technical in order to be able to do that. And again, I would say reach out to your vendor um, because your vendor may have mechanisms that they have in place for helping you with those backups.
1: You also brought up another point earlier, uh, though probably not in the language that we generally use, but uh, definitely one of those things you should be doing is uh, periodic drills using this. Uh, We all know that we're required to do either tabletop or actual drills, and this is an excellent drill. To educate your staff gives you an opportunity to educate your staff while you're doing the drill, as well as to test all those systems that you put in place here. So uh that would be my recommendation: uh is to make your next quarter's disaster drill be uh, one on uh, cybersecurity. Yeah, I think, absolutely.
3: Uh, Bobby, kind of, he, he used the phrase earlier. It's not, it's not if, but when. Yeah, uh, and that's, I think that's scary. Everyone, yeah. yeah, and and it's and it, it it couldn't be more true. I mean, I'm sure there are. ASCs out there now, if you don't have the the appropriate tools and resources in place to be addressing security concerns, there's there's breaches going on right now that are being undetected uh, and folks aren't aware of it. One of the key functions of your information security program should be how you deal with incident response and and, and testing your backups and recovery uh, is all part of that whole process. And by doing it more frequently and testing the process and improving the progress process when it does happen you're just going to be that that much better prepared to, to respond uh, and get your, your organization or your asc back up and running that much quicker
1: now as ascs we use generally have three different ways that uh, our data can be hosted or our systems can be hosted it can be either on a uh, client <laughs> server uh, system or a hosted client server system or uh, a total uh, software as a service. Can you, uh, first of all, I just threw those out there without defining them. First of all, can you uh, define those for us, uh, put them in a perspective that all of our listeners can understand and, and talk about the different cybersecurity risks that each of those uh, particular uh, setups uh, pose?
4: Sure. So um, I guess your your first setup would be what we call on-prem. Where you've got a client server setup and it is hosted in your network where you're responsible for securing the network you're responsible for the database the backup all of the other pieces a lot of what we're seeing is vendors will take that on-prem product and put it in a data center that they control and then expose the ui with the terminal services or citrix that's where we we kind of call that a hosted on-prem, and that takes the hardware off of you. It also takes the the operations off of you. You're not then responsible for the backups. You're not responsible for the other pieces. And then of course there's a web or a SaaS offering, um, which is again a newer technology, web-based, where you're accessing stuff with with a browser. So those are really kind of the the three different aspects. And um, from a, a risk perspective, having it on prem is a pretty big risk because you have to be responsible for your network. You have to be responsible for all of the updates. When you switch that to hosting, a lot of that goes away, but you're still you're still with the aspect of and not I don't say older technology because it doesn't have to be, um, but you still have that client server technology. You still have those pieces um, that can be broken and the testing. And the maintenance and the mechanism of them are still a little more expensive. When you go to more of a SaaS offering, uh, the tools and the technologies lend themselves a little more uh, to being protected. Uh, not to say that you can write, you can write a bad SaaS software. Um, so it's not to say that you can't, but But most of the technologies lend themselves to a little more of the the security pieces. And most of the vendors that are doing that, you can go back and ask them, what, what is your process for securing the data? What is your process? Since it's all on them, you can get their white papers. You can get their validations and make sure that they're doing what seems reasonable to you. Because ultimately, if a, if a patient gets exposed, it may be through your vendor, but they may also be blaming you. Do you know what I mean? So you want to make sure that you're comfortable with everything that's going on.
1: So I think what you're saying, and I, I would agree, is that the uh, the SAS type sus- system is the uh, easiest for a surgery center to maintain since uh, they really, shall we say, outsourcing uh, the responsibility to another organization. But it does not relieve that organization from the requirement to, um, to do a risk assessment or to uh, do drills, really, to make sure that that data.
4: Yeah, absolutely. That that would be one of the things that again I would challenge challenge the ASCs. If you've got a, a SaaS vendor, go back to them and say, Hey, you know what? I'd like to see my backup from two weeks ago. Can you please can you can you please restore my backup from two weeks ago? I want to validate that had I been hacked, you would be able to give me that. Um so yes, I I, I absolutely believe it's still on the ASC's responsibility to kind of own it but you can at least push push back on your vendor, make sure that they can support those things before you pick them as a vendor. Right,
1: moving along with SAAS, Software as a Service, Let's talk some more about some of the other benefits of that. So it's not just cybersecurity, obviously, that, that I, I would make the argument is probably the strongest one. Uh, what other advantages might there be to SAAS? And, and by the way, uh, you know, those types of products, for example, we use a billing system uh, within our company. We, we, uh, we don't maintain, you know, our, our own uh, billing software here. We use uh, software as a service uh, outsource company to do all this um makes our life easier. Similarly, many of our surgery centers might have multiple SAAS applications out there that they're working with. So let's just talk about some of the advantages of, of that type of a system over client server technology.
4: Sure. Well um one of the one of the I guess best things from my perspective, and keep in mind I'm I'm in charge of development, and that is as we find issues, whether they're security issues that we may have accidentally coded or security issues in a library or an operating system or something to that effect. Um, it's easier for us to push it out. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are things where if you're on prem and, and I would challenge some of the ASCs, if they were to reach out to their vendor, they're probably not running the latest version of that vendor software because why? It takes a while to upgrade. Right. And, and so they may actually be running less secure software than the vendor actually has available just because they're on-prem. Whereas with the SaaS, we can look at that and say, you know what? No, you, you, you have to upgrade. So we can push that upgrade and let them know you're being upgraded. Um, when it comes time for multi-factor authentication, um, again, on-prem, you can't necessarily make people turn that on. But with SaaS software, you have a lot more control over that. And you can say, you know what? Nope. We're, we're definitely going to turn something like that on. So, for me, within security and even within functionality and everything else, it's the ability for us to be able to push out updates in a timely manner. That's one of the key features over um, software on prem. Obviously, you have the hardware, right? The SaaS SAS people are still responsible for the hardware. Uh, so, that Again, it may not reduce the cost because they may charge you for that as a service, but you're not having to maintain it. You don't have to come in and go, oh, Microsoft just sent out a security bulletin for Windows 10 32-bit machines. How many of those do I have? Which ones do I need to update? Did somebody have that machine turned off? Um, you're not having to, to deal with those. Uh, how about the rotating of passwords? You know, you may have somebody who's got a password that they've had for six months. Well, you you need to rotate those. If somebody were to get in and hack that, um, they might be sitting there logging in as that user for a while. You don't even know it. Um, So, being able to rotate passwords, a lot of those types of things we can push through SaaS offering a whole lot easier than the on prem or the on prem hosted. That's just, that's from my perspective as a developer. (laughs)
3: Yeah. I I think just to add to, To Bobby's comments, I think we, we talked earlier about um, ASCs and potentially the lack of resources to dedicate to security initiatives. One thing that you get by uh, utilizing a SaaS provider is not only you're offsetting the, the infrastructure costs, you're also uh, moving your data to uh, a provider who has those resources available to provide the appropriate security and protect your data. And then on top of that, with with SaaS, obviously, uh, it's kind of ubiquitous with high availability and scalability, less possibility of your your system going down. Typically, SaaS applications, and Bobby can talk a little more to this, are architected in such a way. So if there was an outage in one part of the country, it replicates over to another. Um, So again, you would get some cost reduction, I believe, by being able to offset some of those security resources that you may not uh, have to spend on your internal environment. And I would go out on a limb and say that the the sophistication of those security resources within the SaaS environment is going to be far superior to that that you're going to be able to afford on the on your in your ASC.
1: Yeah, I think that that's very a very important point here is that so many again of our smaller centers just don't have the resources, never be able to get the resources. Uh, to, to be able to maintain that security that you really need here and that uh, it's well worth the price. Also, I want to talk a little bit about scalability very quickly here. We are running out of time. But with regard to scalability, uh, organizations that are just starting up will find their price tag. You know, they don't have to invest in uh, the technology that they're going to need down the road when they're a lot bigger uh, if they are uh, buying a, a SaaS-type so, uh, solution here because they can start off small and then build and uh, not have to worry about additional hardware. Another point I'd like to make, I, and this happened to me once. I was on the road once, and uh, my uh, my computer crashed. And we we have uh, cloud based everything. Uh, I just went down to the store the next morning. The biggest problem I had was making sure I got to the store in time, bought the new computer, plugged it in, and had enough time to download all the stuff in order to get it back up and running. But um, you you really greatly reduce the uh, amount of um, effort that can go into bringing a new computer online if something fails on you.
4: Well, and you know had had that. Um, computer been stolen yeah, right perfect. there's a lot less data on that as well because it's all stored up on the the, the cloud very good so point. you've got you do have some additional security from from that perspective and uh, and i do want to uh, touch back on the scalability that Paul mentioned you know there's been plenty of times where you push down a new release to an on-prem environment and you find it starts to run really really slow and you start to have problems uh, and that's where it's like oh well you've got to upgrade your memory you've got to upgrade the the speed of the CPU, you need more drive space, blah blah blah, um, and with the SaaS piece of that, that's all taken into account um, because we're not, you know, you're not going to be able to push it out to an environment where it runs slow. If it's running slow, it's going to be running slow for everybody, and uh, and so that's where you know, from a scalability perspective, and auto upgrades and and everything else, it's a good good option for me from a SaaS perspective.
3: In
1: a uh, pandemic world, and a post-pandemic world, where many of us are working from home, of course, we've always Mm -hmm. worked from home, Sue, Uh, but uh, uh, many of our organizations now have uh, moved their uh, billing and coding staff offline, (coughs) Uh, maybe the pre-op assessments are uh, offline. Let's just talk briefly uh, about uh, the advantages of SAS in that type of a situation.
4: Well, like you say, it 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 actually just allows you to be able to do it um, because can you imagine all, all of the people who normally were coming in to use your hardware and your software, if they're now working from home, um, are they taking those machines? Are they installing the software on those machines? What are they doing to keep those machines secure? Um, at least with SaaS software, it's exactly as your example. They just have to go buy a laptop as long as they have the login. Um, They're able to do their work. And again, because it's centrally located, you can even have from an administrative perspective, see what people are doing, how they're doing it. Um, You have a lot more options when all that data is centrally located rather than when it's distributed. You also don't have to worry about, I guess I I say from a connectivity, if you don't have connectivity, you're toast, whether you're at home on-prem or whether you're on a SaaS offering. Because as you're doing it at home, you you might be able to do some stuff locally, but ideally, it's got to get back up to the server at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so as long as you've got connectivity and any laptop, you can work within your SaaS offering. So okay. if you've got that product, it enables people to work. And, and we were lucky. We switched from Outlook to O365 internally. Um, our HR systems, our SaaS offering, our accounting is also SaaS. Mm-hmm. So as part of this pandemic for Sys, we were able to distribute. Even, or even our development environment is up in the Azure cloud. Mm-hmm. So it, for us, during pandemic, we were able to distribute everybody to their home. And all we have to do is maintain their laptops. It worked out really well for us because we were also a user of SaaS software. Right.
3: I, I, uh, I think... One, just to touch in on this real quick, and, and Bobby, you mentioned connectivity earlier. When you're looking at on-prem solutions with a remote workforce, then typically you have to have some kind of VPN connectivity from the end user to your internal environment. Uh, and maintenance of that, as we saw early on in the pandemic, um, there are still some internal resources. And even though we didn't have the entire workforce connecting to that VPN, uh, there were issues. I mean, you need mm-hmm. to be upping in your your bandwidth availability, increasing licensing on some of these uh, VPN connectors to to allow the number of connections coming in, uh, and then there's there's also kind of latency issues that we've noticed across there and performance issues. So, uh, as Bobby mentioned, being able to just navigate across the internet securely to a SaaS offering, uh, it definitely makes life a lot easier.
1: Well, Bobby and Paul, this has been great. I, I'm, I'm sure our audience has learned an awful lot from it. And uh, of course, this isn't making them feeling feel any better about what's going on, uh, but maybe they're better prepared for how they're going to react in their own organization. Uh, thank you for your time. I very much appreciate it. Uh,
4: thank yeah, you. Thank you, John. And see, we really appreciate it as well.
1: Yeah. Thanks. So Sue, traditionally our our third part of our uh, podcast. We spend some time talking about upcoming events. We just don't get them anymore, uh, and I don't even know what else to say there other than if you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com. Hopefully, pretty soon, we're going to be able to start uh, meeting in person and be able to have events to talk about. But I thought what we would talk about is some upcoming um, seminars that we have uh, that we're sponsoring here at the, uh, the podcast. Our first one is the ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Fall Seminar. It's a follow-up to our spring seminar, which was a huge success. And by the way, a recording of the seminar is available at ASCPodcast.com website. So save the date. It's December 3rd and 4th. It's a joint production of ASC Podcast with John Galey and Christina Benton of uh, Coding Compliance Management. Uh, the fall conference will include information on the final 2020 HOPD ASC CMS regulatory updates, as we talked about in the first segment. And more finance and accounting and reimbursement topics to extend our discussion from the spring conference, including more advanced uh, accounting topics, discussion of revenue cycle and reimbursement, advanced financial management, advanced budgeting and financial projections, strategic planning in the ASC setting. So for more information, sign up at ASCPodcast.com.
0: The ASC Association's Winter Seminar is now a virtual conference. January 11th, 19th, and 25th, this popular seminar provides essential training for ASC billers and coders. During three afternoons in January, you'll hear from industry experts as they discuss the coding and billing updates for 2021 and share strategies you can use to maximize your ASC's reimbursements.
1: And probably the most exciting thing that we have done in the last year is the Administrator's Boot Camp. So I have been working for I'd say 10 years to do this. I had hoped to uh, to have uh, have it in some nice place. Actually, I was thinking of doing it on, on a cruise ship, Sue. That, was, that would have been nice. That would have been nice to take all of our, our new administrators out to a, a nice little cruise ship, but that didn't happen. But uh, the virtual world has provided an opportunity to do this in a very cost-effective way. So uh, the uh, so prepare for the challenges of ASC administration by participating in the ASC Administrators Bootcamp. It's a comprehensive program to prepare ASC administrators for the challenges of of leading and managing an ambulatory surgery center. Uh, the bootcamp includes reading materials, virtual private consultations, and an intensive four-day virtual conference, which is gonna be presented in January 2021 from the 26th through the 29th. Uh, the program is designed for new administrators, administrators that win- wish to enhance their skills, and administrators that wish to prepare for certification. This is going to be a highly interactive program, and it's going to be presented to a very limited cohort of students and will be done through virtual private meetings and, of course, as I mentioned, the four-day interactive uh, video conference, allowing you to see the speakers and other attendees, if they wish, and to interact as much as you would during a live conference. Uh, So for more information and to uh, sign up for the um, ASC Administrator's Bootcamp, go to ASCPodcast.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com. And also, please spread the word about our podcast, which has become even more popular, obviously, in the last couple um, months as uh, people are are finding us. So uh, spread the word with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button so you you know right away when a new uh, episode is downloaded. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Caloritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
0: This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved.
1: This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of the care setting, to improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com.
0: And if you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at we would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.